Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, the executive search form for the insure tech industry on an international basis. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to hear a bit more about our recruitment services, please visit www.wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Aurora Vost of Zembel. Hi, how are you? Good morning, Alex. How are you? Yeah, it's, well, is, it, is it what time is it where you are? You, are you in New York, I think we were saying? Yeah, it's such a glorious morning in New York. I'm here. I usually live in Sydney, Australia, but I'm uh, traveling off the back of ITC in Vegas and I've come to spend a week in New York and it's just beautiful here. Yeah, I think if yeah. you've if you've been in New York in winter, anything other than that is like, you know, paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was there in um, I was there for ITI earlier in the year, and it was really hot at the time. And um, I've always been quite lucky with New York, and I think I've only ever been. And everyone tells me about how bleak it can be in the winter, so I just actively <laughs> avoided it. But um, yeah, no, it's slightly more hospitable weather than Vegas, which is was quite a lot to deal with. I don't know about you. <laughs> Yeah, it was full on. Although the last time, um, this is my first time back in the US since 2019. I spent quite a lot of time here then. And, uh, and, and the last time I was in New York, I was pregnant, quite heavily pregnant. And uh, a result of that is that I can't go in the subway anymore. I sound so posh, but I'm like, I can't go down there anymore. Because any slight smell of which there are many in New York kind of triggers me and I think I've yapped on every street corner in the East Village, so <laughs> it's a new experience. <laughs> that's a, that's a thing to avoid. That's, yeah. that's certainly a thing to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we've dived straight in, and I, I think it's coming back off of ITC. We, we we met there, and um, obviously, I understood more about Zemble there. But just for the people um, who are listening in, who might not know the Zemble business, uh, be wonderful if you could introduce yourself and and, and the business. Yeah, thank you, Alex. So my name's Aurora Voss. I'm CEO and co-founder at Zemble. And at Zemble, we're uh, we're building new data and communication pipes for insurance cost centers. So what does that mean? It means that we help our insurance customers of all kinds to create personalized digital experiences for everyone involved in crazy complex processes like claims, complaints, disputes, compliance, and uh, in helping them to kind of configure and, and better manage their data we help them to codify decision making in those cost centers which is very exciting actually mm. <laughs> funnily enough <laughs> yeah. well you know um you know when we spoke i've got a, and i was talking about this yesterday with, with someone that runs an event on claims I'm, I'm very i know it's not just claims uh but i'm very excited about anything that touches on claims i've got a bit oh. of being, it's a, yep. I get, you're my people <laughs> <laughs> i get far too excited about it um it's but I think I'm going to share this with you at the time. I think we've talked so much about the customer and delivering for the customer. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and there's not been enough done in tech for things like claims, which is actually the, you know, it's the touch point. It's what you're buying. And uh, yeah. we love to talk about claims being the shop window of insurance, but, but it felt like that, that shop window has been a bit unloved and abandoned for quite some time. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I, when I first, I don't have an insurance background. And when I first started in this company and, you know, started pitching and, and back then we, we were called something different and the focus was quite a lot more narrow than it is now. <clears throat> and uh, I remember, I remember getting up in front of anyone who would listen and being like, you know, claims is a shop window, you know, the shop front, and this is the soul of the, of, of the whole thing and insurance. 
and we must improve the customer experience. And yeah, the you know, you, you learn a lot over four or five years. And now the pitch is quite different because now I understand that there's absolutely no way you can deliver a great customer experience in any industry if the kind of bones and the pipes inside the organization aren't, you know, really top quality and working well. And I, I'm someone who's who's come from lots of other industries, but always from cost centers. So I've always been, you know, customer experience or, you know, debt collection or, you know, having to kind of deliver on a promise post-sales. And uh, we never get the right tech. We never get the good tech. We always get the shit tech. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, and I mean, claims is just a, a beautiful example of that. So, yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm an advocate through and through. Love talking claims. <laughs> well, we'll dive into that, I, I, and I want to. I want to start from the top. So, you came to Zemble as an as an investor, I believe. Um, so yeah. What was the sort How? of what's the what's the founding story of Zemble? And, and I know it wasn't, wasn't Zemble originally, but but obviously now it is. But where does it sort of emanate from? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was not an original co-founder of the business. So there were two original co-founders, Alfonso and Spencer. Two Mexican guys, one uh, software developer of many years, having worked across all kinds of industries for companies like Oracle, and uh, Spencer, who who was a claims guy. So he had worked in medical and disability type claims, running big teams, uh, carrier TPA, and and really, you know, when you talk to most people who work in claims, they're just people, people. Like they're just people who are there to help people through really, really hard times. They're not technical people. They're not, you know, process-driven people. They're just there to help. And uh, his experience, as uh, as I think lots of claims people will will confirm, was that the technology that was there, it just got in the way, you know, in an effort to kind of, you know, digitize or improve processes on the inside. It just got in the way of building relationships with vulnerable customers at their most vulnerable time. And so the founding story of Zemble is really, we were called Claim Space back then is really how can we build technology or deliver technology that doesn't get in the way and helps to strengthen relationships, uh, you know, not just from the claims person to the customer, but all of the other people involved and need to get involved in, in solving these really complex, sometimes really ugly processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I came to it as an investor. So I worked in venture capital before this and uh, the, the venture capital firm I worked for, H2 Ventures, was the first investor in in Zemble. And uh, I always, you know, when I talk to other people who've worked in venture capital, we all we all agree that you become very obsessed with certain companies in your portfolio. And, you know, I just, I completely fell in love with Alfonso and Spencer from the moment I met them, fell in love with the problem, fell in love with the approach, um, had myself, despite not being from insurance, had made a disgusting number of claims in my short life. And so had had a lot of experience um, on the customer end and and having come from industries like healthcare, you know, heavily regulated, very messy cost centers, I, you know, yeah, I fell in love. I always say I just immediately fell in love with the problem and, and the space. I love that. I love that. Nigel Walsh should be enjoying that because he, he, <laughs> he was on a mission to get people to fall in love with insurance. So, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. He'll be very happy, be very happy about that. But, um, you know, interesting though to come to insurance and insure tech because you know, as an investor, you get this kind of broad overview of different businesses. You had other businesses in your portfolio, so we kind of now I sort of get the kind of specifically this business maybe, but but 
why insurance and insure tech from from that point of view what was it about the sector that you know particularly or was it or was it just this company that really sort of pulled you in no i mean i i don't know i i think for me it was more of the personal connection that i had to the problem at large uh you know i'd i'd come you know i was in vc before that i was working at kpmg and i was working across a few really interesting lines of business so i was sort of in i had insure tech sports tech and ag tech. So I, I've certainly been exposed to a lot of other opportunities and industries, but I think ultimately it, it came down to the personal connection I had to the problem. You know, um, you, you know, I, I, I joke about having made a lot of claims in my life, but I think my, my, first, uh, my first experience of claims was as a, as a sort of young teenager. My, my, we're South African and we immigrated to Australia. My parents worked like they lost most of what they had in the move. They worked really hard. They bought us a new family home and we lost it in a flood not very long after we bought it. And um, that was traumatic enough. But then the claims process after that was what I remember most, you know, my parents going through that. And I remember just thinking, how is this so terrible? And it sort of marked my early teen years. And then coming back to, you know, being exposed to Zemble, you know, what, 20 years later, I remember thinking when I first met the guys, I was like, definitely this is better now. I was like, there's no way that there's no way that people are out there having the same experience that my family had 20 years ago. I was like, nah, that's that's crazy. Especially not in home and auto, which is such a high volume, low margin industry. Like they must have fixed this. And then it turned out, you know, um, not that nothing had changed, but that there haven't there hasn't been enough movement because as it turns out, those pipes inside that kind of basic core is still not agile enough so I think yeah ultimately it was about it was about people um, and about that personal problem that I just thought okay you have to drop everything at that point and go or you've got to give it a crack you know you've got to you got to go and go and try so yeah yeah it's interesting though because you think of those other industries ad tech sport tech insure tech I think you asked most people on the street they'd be like both of those other two sound more fun (laughs) (laughs) way more sexy and and uh yeah but, yeah but then to your point i think there's 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 bigger inherent problems to solve right? i think there's big opportunities in you know sports tech ad tech but you're like I, I i don't know i think about advertising all the time and obviously it's been a quite a big thing on social media and, and you know i did uh, a marketing degree so I, I kind of looked at the advertising industry and i thought do i really want to sell things to people that don't want it like is that is that is that, is that what i want to do with my life is like and, and sports tech and i'm like you know i love playing sport but i don't really like the business around it and i don't think anybody does you know uh, some of it's good and so it's bad so um i think you made the right moral choice obviously but um <laughs> but i would yeah, you, you know what's funny about insurance that from the out i think people in insurance understand this inherently but i certainly didn't um insurance is I mean, light years more exciting than it was 20 years ago. And it's not necessarily because of the technology. You know, I remember five years ago when I started on the InsurTech scene and everyone was talking about, you know, like we've got to, we've got to turn insurance into Amazon. You know, we've got to have these like Amazon type of customer experiences. And I, I remember thinking like, well, well, no, like I don't, you know, there are, there's like a sector of the insurance industry where Amazon type experiences is absolutely the right way to go. And there's like a whole other, a whole other relationship based type, type part of the industry where that's probably not the right approach. But the truth is insurance is way more interesting and exciting than it used to be, because I think traditionally it was about, we're an insurance carrier. 
and we have our customer and that's you know that's the relationship and now the truth is it's not only about technology but the relationship structures and insurance are so much more exciting than they used to be you know now you've got the realization that as an industry you know insurance ecosystems is where we're headed you know it takes it takes many to not just lift the tide but actually to service policy you know um and so now you've got these incredible structures you know you've got mgas partnering with lots of carriers you've got data partners you've got you know, brokers who, you know, everyone thought would uh, disappear, but it turns out they're this fundamental core of the industry. So when you, when you kind of, when I think about it from that approach, you're like, wow, this is, there's so, not just so much left to do, but it's a much more rich and exciting industry than I think it used to be. And then when you think about the possibility of technology on top of that, you're like, yeah, it's especially exciting. Yeah, I, I was on this, I was telling you about an ill-fated webinar I was on where my computer kept crashing. Uh, but, but before it crashed, um, the point we were asked about was like, essentially what skills and um, what's the talent profile of people coming into the industry? Mm. And, and I said, it's less about, it's never been that it's not been talented people and it's never been that it's not been specialists in the industry. And, and, and this is ignoring the obvious kind of growth of tech. Mm. You've got the same kind of like people that are required to do it. They have to be curious. They have to be interested, but they have to believe. Like, I think you have to believe in that what you're doing is actually providing a safety net for and a facilitator. So a safety net for people that need it and a facilitator for things like business and commerce. And and, and that's the thing that I really buy into. And it's international and it's kind of, you know, sort of completely agnostic about who you are, what you are, as long as as long as there's a kind of price we can give you that you can afford, you can go for it. But what we talked about was a culturally I think come, people are coming into it with a slightly different, clearer mindset and, and the technology is just helping that. So, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday that, you know, just the fact that now when I give you my address, you don't have to ask me how old's my building. You know, you used to get asked, how much would it cost to rebuild your house if it fell over? Huh? Why would I know that information? Like, I'm not a builder. Like, you've got my profession, it is recruitment professional, I don't know anything about building. So, um, you know, now you don't need to do that. Now, now when I have a claim, it, the automation part of it kind of, because all the things people outside of the industry hate about the industry, is all the stuff that technology can solve. And then I just, you know, I look forward 20 years for when we're having sort of more positive conversations about your insurance partner being able to proactively do things for you like oh there's a change in your life would it benefit you to get coverage for that or or, or this is why this might be the case and and it becomes a helpful part of your life and it actually becomes what it's truly supposed to be be there for which is you know the the payments of the many you know back up the few and also also it's frictionless so I don't think anyone dislikes the idea of insurance but when you have a claims process like you experience like yourself when you have kind of horrible sign-up process like I'm talking about, these are the things people don't like. It's, it's you know, and it's like saying, it's like going for a meal and saying the meal was great. Service is appalling, really hard to book in. They wanted to kick me out before I was ready to go. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's not the bit you remember, right? You don't remember the lovely meal you had in the middle. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted, so I'm going to move on. No, so, no. <laughs> um, so you are obviously based in, the business is remote, but you're based in Sydney, um, I believe. And um, so you're a board member of InsureTech Australia. Um, I'm, I'm questioning everything that I've put down here because I know we've got one thing wrong, so it makes me nervous. But um, you are a board member of InsureTech Australia. I wanted yeah. to ask you like, how important those types of groups are in, in innovation within the industry. Like, you know, what part do they really play in innovation? Yeah. Oh, they're the best. I think they're really important. I mean, 
I know, I mean, I'm going to speak to the Australian market, but um, there, I think even especially during COVID, they've been so important um, because there, there is a tendency when you get any kind of, uh, let's call it a legacy or very old industry and new kind of technology to try and help it, there's a tendency to sort of silo and operate in, you know, alone. Because the truth is that any, any insurance organisation that you speak to, and in fact, this is true of any industry, but we all believe that we are unique and we all believe that we are not special, but, you know, we have our own way of doing things. And that can, at an industry level, sort of compound into this very kind of siloed way of thinking. And when you have a whole range of new technologies coming to try and service and improve an industry, I think bodies like InsureTech Australia, and there are many, you know, in the UK, the US, they they play a really important role because ultimately they're about bringing people and organisations and technology together and exposing not just problems that, that organisations have, but then technologies that may solve them. They're really important for networking. And insurance remains, I think, a relationship-based industry you know it's 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 true not just for the customer but for us operating inside the industry it's true that trust is king um, or queen and and i think organizations like insurance like australia facilitate so many relationships connections and and expose a lot of tech that may go unnoticed otherwise so it's been such a good experience for me and uh, yeah and i'm actually stepping off the board this november um but but the the experience has been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. No, I I really believe in those groups, and I think there's um I think yeah. exactly the same as you. Uh, the important part they play, and, and just the connecting the dots. I mean, I was speaking to yeah. someone in Shortech UK, and they were saying, you know, for example, just from my perspective, selfishly from my business, and they went, oh, you've done a good job for some of us. Do you want us to connect you to? InsureTech Australia, or, or you know, and just making that introduction, um, and and that just in itself is helpful. Not for me, but I'd like to think for clients and potential clients that we might have, um, because you go, well, where do you find someone who knows anything? For example, if you wanted to branch out into the UK, oh, there's a guy over here and that can help you out. And I think just that flow of information, we can sometimes mm-hmm. underplay how important that can be. Um, so I think. Yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah, actually, yesterday, that makes me think, um, you know, for an Australian I mean, I'm an Australian, Australian founder. We Zemble is now a kind of US entity we've flipped up because we have investors here. But I mean, as an Australian founder coming to a place like New York, it can be absolutely overwhelming. And yesterday I had a call with the lovely Tony Liu from InsureTech New York. And, you know, just in one conversation, he made so many introductions for me, helped me sort of think about, about approaches to this market differently. So yeah, yeah, hats off to everyone running those type of groups. Yeah, awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you how that serving on the board, being part of that kind of community, um, you see this industry-wide view. Has it influenced at all your role as CEO, or how you how you conduct yourself in that role as CEO? Oh yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. I, I've never been a CEO before, and I've never run a company before. This is my first rodeo, uh, and I know that. You know, I've I've got investors and and you know we've got obviously governance and things in our own company. But I know that you know I, since joining Introtech Australia, there've been two CEOs. So first Reedy Yates, amazing, and and now Simone Dossiter. Um, and I've I've learned a lot from those two women just in how professional they are, how well they run, and, and a lot of what I learned being on that board, I take back 
to my own company. And I think they've definitely made me a better CEO, <laughs> yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I so. Think- that, I think it's particularly, I mean, it's true myself, right? This is my company, but I've never run, I've never really run a company before, certainly not my own. I've been a co-founder and, you know, I had a really experienced co-founder. So I kind of leaned into that person and, and, and running this thing. I just joined a network of people in the recruitment profession and, and you don't know what you don't know as well. That's the thing. And you just sometimes see something and go, I think I really should know that. I don't. Totally. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely true. I think, I think that, um, my proximity to to InsureTech Australia has been a huge bonus for Zemble because, I mean, there's always a risk of building something in isolation, uh, particularly as, you know, a new tech product wanting to change the world. And, and you know, at Zemble, first and foremost, we have our customers and prospects who, you know, every day they're teaching us about what is important and what is needed. Um, but having that kind of bird's eye view and access to all kinds of parts of the industry that's really influenced Zemble, particularly from a product perspective. It's given us a lot more context that we otherwise wouldn't have had, had access to. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, super helpful. Um, wanted to take you back in, in time a little bit to maybe a slightly traumatic experience, so uh, <laughs> hopefully not. Um, but you, you raised your seed round in 2020. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, any surprises? Was it was it as you expected? <laughs> No, <laughs> it wasn't as I expected. Um, yeah, so look, I I have this background in VC and before that, you know, accelerators and, and, and before that I had worked for startups and, you know, while I was working there, they had gone through capital raises and, you know, I'd had to contribute to that. So what the funny thing is I'd had a lot of experience, particularly in these, my time in VC was for sort of very, very early stage. And so I think that I went into it thinking that I knew more than I did, probably. Um, and I remember when I was in VC telling, you know, the portfolio companies, you know, remember this and don't do this and make sure you watch out for that. And then, of course, I walked right into my own business and made all of the same mistakes. Um, but that first round that we raised was a very intense experience. And I, I also, you know, I should mention that I... So I, I joined Zemble as a co-founder, I think in, let's say, February of 2019. And about a month later, I got pregnant for the first time, um, very unexpectedly, because I had, we'd been trying for a very long time before that. So I was heavily pregnant when I was raising my first round of capital. And I was, um, you know, I had trouble raising in Australia. I mean, obviously, it's a much smaller market, probably more conservative investor profile. And and also, you know, we were very, very early on and didn't have very much traction. So I was just traipsing across the US. I mean, I was on a plane, you know, two or three times a week through different programs, going out and pitching to investors all over the US while I was, you know, about six or seven months pregnant. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a very challenging time. Um, and, and I didn't actually manage to close out that first round of capital until after I had gone back to Australia, had the kid. Um, and by that time, it was the middle of the pandemic. So I actually ended up sort of raising the end of the round, you know, in that those first early, early stages of the pandemic, which was crazy. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of all came together in the end. We, we found phenomenal lead investors here in New York and then you know people ask me and I actually ended up raising the rest of the round over Twitter so I remember sitting in my bedroom with the newborn (laughs) breastfeeding the newborn baby at like three o'clock in the morning getting on Twitter and connecting with 
you know, a couple of founders of businesses I really respect in San Francisco. And, you know, they said, oh, what are you building? And I'm, oh, I'm building this. And are you raising? Yes, I am. And, you know, we sort of ended up closing the round that way, uh, which was just wild. Uh, you know, no one before 2020, you know, January or March of 2020 would have thought that you could raise a round of capital remotely, you know, uh, and lucky for me, <laughs> it, it turned out to be the way to go. And, and so, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And I think, you know, they say, I don't know, like childbirth, the first one's the hardest. Uh, so, you know, we, we will probably look to raise another round of capital next year. And I'm, I'm really excited too, because I think, I think, you know, having done one and having raised through a pandemic and having raised, you know, when I like recently born baby, uh, I think maybe I'll have a clearer head this time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to try and coincide and getting pregnant just to make it doubly hard the second time around. No, no, no. I've, I've done two babies and now we can, now we no, can move no. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, because what have you, what would you take from that experience in terms of how you prepare for the next fundraise? You know, do you, would you go back to your learnings and go, right, you knew all these things, you still did them anyway. Um, is, is this something that you took from that? hit Twitter up harder? I don't know, what would the... <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that ultimately, like the, the lessons that I learned when I was in VC and, and I used to tell the portfolio companies remains the same. You know, I think when, when you're in a, when you're in a, a growing startup, uh, particularly around sort of the early stages, you know, before you hit sort of like series A, B, C, you know, where things are sort of more structured and, and I, I suppose clear, I think the key is always going to be consistency. And I mean, that's kind of a life motto anyway, you know, in relationships that you have. But I think if you can, I've, I've learned to be consistent, consistent in investor updates, consistent in documenting uh, our traction, consistent in, you know, growing relationships with investors, you know, sometimes years in advance of ever asking them for money. Um, and I think definitely, you know, just personally, the last two years has been very intense for me because I've been, you know, getting the business off the ground, but also had two children during a pandemic. And, and it's really come to bear that if you have a really rock solid relationship with your investors, I mean, it's just such a huge advantage. And they've definitely seen me through some, uh, some challenging times. Um, but yeah, I think consistency and, and investing in those kind of relationships is really important. And I mean, the, you know, I, ha I have a clear idea in my head of what our next round look like, looks like and I have a clear idea of who I'd like to raise money from and and you know I, I know those people already I've been building relationships with them for two years and keeping them up updated with with our progress and and that's yeah I think I think that's really what's what's turned out to be the most important thing. I think that's really uh, a good point to make that I think sometimes people miss and certainly something I misjudged when I didn't realize how much of a relationship driven business that investment you know vc world was I, I think i i think and i think it's interesting for new founders that's raising for the first time i definitely i sort of have conversations where i think people go oh you just think it's a check and i don't yeah. i don't think like blindly they think oh i want yeah. this investor versus that investor but sometimes they want a marquee investor because they want that marquee investor and you go and and the more and more closer you get you need that close relationship it needs to mm -hmm. and it needs to be a good relationship because otherwise you must be so much more stressful running a, you know, venture back business with, with a bad relationship with your investors or, or not even a, not a yeah. good one, you know, like it just must be so yeah. much. Yeah. And, 
and actually, I mean, I, I always say that like the best boss or bosses I've ever had were my bosses back at H2 Ventures, which was the, the, the VC I was working for before Zemble that invested in Zemble. And I mean, they, I'm so grateful for them because those, they're two brothers, Ben and Toby Heap that, that run H2 and they're the partners there. And, and I mean, they set the benchmark for me for what a relationship with an investor should be like. And I've, I, I model everything moving forward. I model on that. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's proven right. And I mean, the relationship thing is true with, with, you know, the sales side of my business as well. You know, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very easy to kind of go into an insurance organization, especially a claims organization and be like, oh, you know, like, this is terrible. Like the way you're doing things is terrible and you really need to digitize everything. And then you realize, ah, it's, you know, it's actually about relationships. You know, I've been, there, there's some customers that we have, I was talking to them for two years before, before they ended up coming onto the Zimble platform. And, you know, by building those relationships, I understood, you know, they had goals, but not, not everything is possible immediately. You know, particularly the kinds of people that we work with, they're, they're the heads of, of cost centers. And, and you can't always, as, as an insurance cost center, just say, hey, like, give me money for this project right now. You know, obviously there's a, there's a process. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels and crossovers, but yeah, relationships That's are everything. Yeah, that, that sales thing's really the really interesting point because I think some of the some of the things that people get wrong when selling, from my point of view, is that they're, you know, it, it's like the insinuation, oh, you you should our technology is better, so therefore we should do it. You're like the people that are running these cost centers are pretty smart. They know yeah. what's wrong. Like they know what's wrong. They're like, yeah, we'd love to do that. We just can't do it right now because time scale, budget, manpower. Like there's a there's a myriad of reasons that yeah. to come with the assumption almost yeah. like, well, don't you know your technology is rubbish? You're like, yes, we do. <laughs> every day. So um, yeah, yeah. This, there's a level of empathy in that, isn't there as well? And that sort of uh, respect yeah. for the person the other side of it, um, you know. Totally, totally. And it's funny, you know, we at, at Zimble, we, I mean, our customers are, are varied in, in size, but I, I'd say the kind of bread and butter, the, the bulk of our customer base, they're not huge insurance organizations. They're small to mid market, like carriers, TPAs, NGAs, sometimes smaller reinsurers. And, you know, when you, when you talk to their head of claims, you know, it's a mistake to go in and say, oh, you know, you've got a crap claims organization because, you know, you don't have a digital platform that you're, you know, you haven't created these seamless digital experiences for customers. Because if you talk to the head of claims in one of those smaller organizations, they're like, well, actually, my differentiator is that I'm willing to pick up the phone and call a customer when, you know, there's been a disability loss or, you know, a complex commercial claim. And there's like, that's my advantage. And it's absolutely true that smaller organizations in claims complaints, that is their advantage. And so if you go in and you're like, you know, what you're doing sucks, <laughs> you know, it, it shows that you don't really understand what they're aiming for. And, and that's true of Zemble, you know, we, I, I've certainly evolved to, to learn, you know, underneath it all, or every organization, every claims organization, if you talk to them, they say, oh, our goal is to deliver great experiences for our customers and our partners. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means, yes, we need to digitize everything and have like a 24 seven online. But sometimes it actually means, you know what, the, I don't know where my data is. And, and I've got these three reinsurance or, or, or carrier partners and, 
it's really hard getting sharing data between the two organizations. And actually, if I fix that and make that way more efficient, then it's going to free me up to invest in the time I spend with my customer over the phone, understanding where they're at. You know, so yeah, every every organization is different, and 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 sometimes sometimes what we think of as you know like sexy tech, you know, is actually not a priority for customers. Yeah, right there, now. Might, there might be a reason it doesn't have that. I mean, I, I think yeah. about you know if I think of like real you know we're we're a sort of search firm, but we we skirt the line and we work with smaller companies, so we work a bit sort of nimbler. So we embrace quite a lot of technology, but you know some of my some of the people that I really respect in my industry that do some of the most senior searches in insurance, they almost like, you know, they don't have LinkedIn licenses and they don't, like, they're, they're, they're not interested in having like technology that helps them out because they are, it's all relationship driven business. And, and yeah. but it would be foolish of me to say that, you know, they can get anyone anywhere, but they do it by picking up the phone and speaking to people and building relationships. So yeah, it's, it, it even reflects in my industry. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, about communication, actually sort of moving on from there. So, <clears throat> see you've got team members in six different countries i think uh, yeah, yes it's constantly changing some of our some of our team members are sort of starting kind of nomadic lifestyles you know they're sort uh, of nice. spending some time in different places i, I keep yeah. threat, i keep threatening to do that um uh, yeah i, I threaten to the team can we go to argentina for a month because it's on a really good time um oh, and, and currently as we sit here with the british british economy tanking i'm thinking well I might as well um <laughs> before my pounds are absolutely useless i might as well take them somewhere um but um how does that impact your ability to deliver your products and services in in different countries the, the, because I know the positives of it and the remote setup and you can hire anyone anywhere, you can allow people to be in the magic, but does it impact your kind of ability to deliver at times? And, and, and so I suppose follow up from that is like, how do you, how do you counteract that or how do you overcome that if it's a problem at all? Yeah. So in terms of delivery, I mean, we've got customers in effectively in like two time zones, right? In the sort of Australian time zone and in the U S time zone. Um, so at the beginning it was, really hard because especially during the pandemic like me my co-founder and our whole team was in Australia we had customers in Canada and some you know early on trying to sell to the US and that was hard I mean the reality was that I was you know having phone calls at sometimes two o'clock three o'clock four o'clock in the morning um, and yeah that was really difficult and so actually having a more remote global team our first step was we need we need support centers in in both time zones um and it's been phenomenal um i think i think business-wise that was the most important fundamental to get right so are our customers supported around the clock for whatever happens because we are a you know we're we're a business critical system and and that comes with a lot of responsibility in terms of not really just downtime but just the ability ability to actually have someone pick up the phone you know there was an example is there was a an internet outage in Canada a couple of months ago and our platform wasn't affected but the people our customers in Canada needed to be able to pick up the phone and 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 speak to someone from Zemble so um in that sense having a kind of global remote business has been phenomenal for for us and for the customers and we'll just continue to invest in people in both time zones and it's no longer like a country specific thing it's just as long as someone is roughly in the latin american u.s canadian time zone as long as someone's roughly in australia it's great of course it has other challenges from a, a sort of business organizational perspective you know you have to rethink you know we went from all in person to remote very very quickly it was a, a sharp shift 
but you also adjust and adapt and and uh you know we we've just because you know you have less meetings for sure which is actually really nice um but you just you adapt and i think particularly for a company at, at our early stage you know we're adapting all the time like every probably every six months we have a kind of organizational shift in you know how we run things because the business requires new things we're at a different stage so um you know if you can be agile then uh and you can sort of think on your feet then it, it really works um and it's a it's a tremendous and incredibly rich experience having team members from different backgrounds with different languages you know in different time zones celebrating different things you know it's it's a beautiful thing and my co-founder is I'm originally South African but my co-founder is from Mexico and so you know just that in itself you know we we have we have different backgrounds so we embrace that yeah yeah no I love that although well, they make me laugh about languages because I've now got a team that all, all speak French other than me so um <laughs> no I've actually banned them I banned them from speaking French apart from on Friday because I'm like it's, it's, I can tolerate not being able to understand anything you're saying about me <laughs> one day that's um, that's really funny it's yeah <laughs> Spanish is Spanish is the unofficial language at, at Zemble uh, I'm just really like I'm married a Mexican as well so I'm I'm lucky that I can speak Spanish fluently but it's true. It's actually really nice. New team members who join us, you know, they all give it a go and everyone sort of ends up doing Spanish classes. Yeah, I can understand Spanish. That's the irony. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. It's simple. I'm terrible. At, I'm, I'm terrible. At language. Um, um, I just, uh, lastly, I wanted to, I'm really conscious of time, so I, I'll, I'll probably make this the last thing we ask you, but we talked about it earlier. It wasn't originally Zemble, was it? The business was Claim something. Uh, sorry. I forgot, I forgot. Yeah. No, but, claim, claim Space. Yeah. Same space. Sorry, I, I forgot. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you. So it was a rebrand. It's a it's a new name. You know, how do you make these things meaningful, or or why was it meaningful to do it? I'm always kind of interested in, you know, because sometimes it's just a rebrand, and it, and it, and it you know, you sort of go, what's the substance behind that? But what was what was the kind of driver for that, and 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 how how do you make it actually mean something to people? Yeah. Oh. It was, yeah, it was a whole experience. I think um, I, we were really weary because we, we, we got to the point where we thought, okay, it, it's the right time to rebrand. There was a lot of reasons for that, that I'll come to. But I think one of the challenges was, you know, we're not, we still aren't like a huge kind of scale up, you know, incredibly successful business. That's, you know, we're an early stage uh, technology company. And uh, one of the worst things that you can do at an early stage is lose focus. And if you let it, uh, something as sort of significant as a rebrand can kind of suck up months of your of your time or, or kind of veer you away from what's most important, which is customers and your technology. Um, so we were, we were certainly aware of that. Um, we decided to rebrand for a number of reasons. Um, a lot of it had to do with our own customers. Um, you know, the, if, if you go and you search for claims related tools, I mean, it's absolutely crowded and there's probably 50 companies at this point with claim something or something claim. Um, so certainly we thought about, you know, getting lost in the noise, uh, which was a, a big drive for the rebrand. But also it was because we were just seeing how the technology was being adopted within these organizations. And it always started with claims, but it sort of, it turned out not being about claims. When we started, we... We thought, oh, you know, that naivety that I have, which was, oh, this is definitely already solved for. And when we first started, we thought, oh, all kinds of claims are probably all good and digitized and, and beautiful. It's probably just these really chunky disability claims that, that are hard. 
But then it turned out that actually underneath it all, the real problem was how are insurance cost centers being supported with flexible technology that allows them to become real sort of data warehouse powerhouses and therefore enable great experiences for everyone involved. And so that was that we thought about that a lot in the, the, the change to the name Zemble. Zemble was a kind of a play on the word assemble. You know, my my co-founder Alfonso, he's a, a huge um superhero Marvel kind of comic book fan. And he loved the idea of like assemble the team, you know, like assemble the data together. So yeah, internally there was a lot of that going on. Um, and we got, you know, we got input from from the team, of course, but also from our customers. You know, we did a lot of sort of understanding and research around what does this platform actually mean to you and at the end of the day it had very little to do with claims it was about you know this platform enables us to bring together all of the people that matter to our business and create great experiences for all of them why because we know where the data is we you know we've got these clean pipes that we can send it and retrieve it from so yeah it was a it was a big undertaking but um, we got it and, and shout out to Felix, who's our, our head of product. He he came up with the logo and um, and Jana, who who worked with us previously, she helped us with the name. So, yeah, lots of oh, team effort. Yeah, I love that. Love that. And I, th- I think the thing that um, you touched on there that resonates with me is it, it's a bit like um, when, you know, when p- people produce values and oh, our values are this as a business or this is our mission. And, and mm-hmm. we talk about it quite a lot, particularly from a recruitment standpoint. I'm just like, if you're not involving the team it doesn't mean anything yeah so it's really nice to hear that the rebrand as well is involving the team because like everyone has to get behind it and believe in it um yeah totally and i mean we're, we're still a pretty small team we're like only about you know six people and so it would be kind of weird if you like left yeah. out there on such a small team so yeah yeah. yeah yeah that's that's how we operate we we managed to view offices and we just took everyone around all the offices all day because there's not enough of us to worry about but you know um didn't want any dissenting voices um well uh aurora thank you so much it's been a, like yeah. i had such a good time talking to you in itc i was like we've got to get you on um I, i'm you. excited about anything related to sort of improving the plumbing of uh, insurance companies but particularly when it touches on claims so um I always like to finish with like what's what's ahead for you like so mm. is there anything coming up that you know you're really excited about new territories or, or or funding rounds or any painful things like that yeah look I mean we're we're just in a space where we're just all about customers and trying to get the technology into the hands of as many claims and complaints teams as we can we we certainly now that travel has opened up uh, you know I'm back in the U.S. a lot more so I've now got my next three or four I'm sort of out here in the U.S. every three months now um, so we're just really excited to pick thing, pick up more conversations in the U.S. market because we, at the moment, we're sort of um, we've got our base in Australia and Canada. So yeah, my my big my big focus is is on I suppose the U.S. market. It's on finding small to mid-sized sort of specialty insurance cost centers. You know, in in the U.S., it's just it's beautiful. There are just so many organizations. You know, we have a big focus on mutual insurers. You know. You know, I think we were saying at ITC, like one thing that surprised me at ITC was I can't believe how many new insurance companies there are, like how many new MGAs selling new specialized products. Um, so for us, uh, for us, it's just all about more customers, deploying more of the technology, seeing more, you know, beautiful, clean, configurable pipes being put into these cost centers. Ah, so exciting. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. We'll, we'll certainly look to raise another round of capital next year, but you know, for the next kind of six months, it's just all about customers as it should be. 
brilliant. Well, lovely. That's a lovely tagline to end up. So we'll, uh, that'll be a great edit for Sophie. So we'll leave that in there. <laughs> um, Thanks, Sophie. Laura, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you taking time. So, um, and really lovely to see you again. Yeah, you too. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. As ever, this is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, the executive search firm for the insure tech industry on an international basis. If you want to find out more about what we do from a recruitment standpoint, please visit www.wearefinpro.com. 